Father in heaven, as we come before you this morning, we do praise you because you are the King of kings. We recognize that we are dependent upon you in all things. We lean upon you for our strength, and, and I do that this morning. Father, as we open your word today, may your spirit speak to each of us. May you open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word. We'll give you the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, I'm not often in this role on Sunday mornings, in part because I, I take too many liberties. So this morning, I would like to take a liberty and introduce to you my newest granddaughter. <clears throat> there she is. This is my granddaughter, Brinley. She's six days old today. This is an old picture of her. It was taken when she was much younger. <laughs> she is a gift from God, and we are truly blessed by him. I'm amazed that, just as I was with my other three grandkids, just amazed at how quickly I have fallen in love with her. I love her. And as her grandfather, I want what's best for her. I've been praying to that end even before she was born. I have great hope for her. I have great hopes for her. But I must admit, while I certainly have hope for her, I also have concerns for her. Because she's not aware of the world into which she was just born. Even though she's exceptionally bright. She's entering a world where there is worldwide unrest. There are conflicts. There are wars. It's a time of great uncertainty. And it's a time without the optimism that peace is anywhere near the horizon. She's born into a world where the value of human life is marginalized at best. We abort the unborn on a whim. And we call it health care, or we call it re reproductive rights. She's being born into a world where illicit drugs are prevalent and, and accepted, even provided in some cases, and abuses are rampant. Some of our streets are filled with addicts. We cater to them as leaders look the other way. Crime and violence and lawlessness abounds. And it doesn't seem as if there's any consequence for the actions. If so, they're often not apparent. You can steal, or worse, and not face prosecution. It seems as if wickedness and evil are thriving. How far removed from Genesis 6-5 are we today where we read that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually? We don't even take a break from having evil thoughts. In some ways, that's an accurate description of what we are realizing in our world today. She's growing up in a world where gender confusion is prevalent. We are so messed up we can't even get our pronouns right. 
We allow boys to share bathrooms with girls. We somehow allow people to be open to changing their gender as if it were even possible. And somehow we justify it as being right. And if you put up a fuss about it, you are the one who is the bigot. Sex has no boundaries. There are no limits. Sexual perversion and homosexuality have proliferated our world. As Romans 1 states, we give approval to those who sin in this way. Truth is no longer truth. We create our own truth to please our misguided minds. We exchange the truth of God for a lie and promote it as being honorable. We reject God and we reject his word. We worship idols, we worship ourselves. It seems as if we have taken leave of our senses. We're in a race to the bottom and we're quickly getting there. While these are just some of the world's concerns and they're there are concerns that affect all of us, it is likely that most of these matters do not dominate our thoughts on a day-to-day basis. Because as we are sitting here or you're watching on live stream, each of us have matters in our own lives that are most concerning to us. Our concerns hit closer to home. Many of us are experiencing matters that bring great stress or anxiety or worry. Some of us have financial concerns. We wonder how we're going to pay this month's bills. We wonder where we're going to have enough food for tomorrow's meals. Some have lost jobs and wonder where the next one's coming from. Some have untenable workplaces, conflicts with a boss or coworkers. Some of us may have unstable marriages and worry about where that marriage is heading. Others have strained relationships, often within our own families, whether it be a spouse or a child or a parent. Others struggle with not even being able to have children. Some of us who have children, their children have gone wayward. It seems as if the world has captivated their hearts. For some of those kids, we're concerned about their very salvation. This is heavy stuff. Some of us are suffering with a chronic illness. Or worse, our loved one is suffering in that way. We may be caring for an ailing or aging parent. These are real concerns. These are not minor happenings. The pressures become almost overwhelming at times. We carry heavy burdens. These trials that seem impossible to overcome and are out of our control. We wonder where our relief will come or if there is a solution to our situation. Some of us may even be to the point of feeling a sense of hopelessness or are in despair. What do we do in times like these? Where do we turn to for help? 
Where do we find our hope when it feels like there is no hope? If you're struggling in any of these areas or another that I have not mentioned today, may I try to encourage you. If you're in a place that is seemingly hopeless or you are in great despair, please know that there is hope. There is reason for hope, and this hope is found in God. As Wes already read earlier in Psalm 42, the psalmist reflects on feelings of great despair. But he also speaks of the one in whom he finds hope. Says this, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, the psalmist says. This this writer is in deep despair. But he says, hope in God. For I shall praise again. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God. When I came across these verses this week, I could not help but think of our friend Lyle Putnam. Lyle battled cancer along with other health matters the last couple years of his life. His prognosis was never, never very positive during that time. But he never lost hope in God. At the end of of nearly all of our conversations, he would end with the words, keep looking up, Tim. Keep looking up. He was determined not to look at the concerns of this world, but to keep his hope and his focus on God. Look to God, he was saying. Don't give up hope. Like Lyle, King David understood this truth very well. So our text this morning, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. This is a psalm that tells that David's only hope is found in God. As you turn there, I give you a little preface. It doesn't seem like there's any particular event in David's life that is tied to Psalm 62. Though many commentators point to the time when David was being pursued and threatened by his own son, Absalom. Absalom was leading a rebellion against King David for his throne. So whether the setting is Absalom's rebellion or not, David writes this psalm under great distress because he is facing betrayal or treason by those who are closest to him. This psalm highlights David's full trust in God alone for his deliverance and serves as an excellent example for us as well. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. David writes, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. While under attack, David silently waits. He waits patiently for his God to intervene. 
He knows that God is the only one who can protect him. He knows that God is the only one who can save him. David ties his hope to God and God alone. He ties his hope to God. God only. Key words in this passage. David repeats the words only and alone a number of times to show his complete reliance upon God. These verses set the tone for the rest of the psalm where David sees the Lord alone as the one who is able to save him from his troubles. In verse 2, David anchors his hopes in God, whom he calls his rock. David sees him as the source of strength, the source of stability, and the source of steadiness, the one to anchor his hopes to. And that's where he attaches them. Why? Because God has proven himself faithful. He has proven himself faithful over and over in the life of David. God has protected him, and he will protect him again. God has defended him, and he will defend him again. God has delivered him, and he will again. God has saved him, and he will again. While David's life is in great turmoil, David is able to to rest in his relationship with God. He waits patiently because his God is faithful. Because his God is trustworthy. David says, I will put my hope in him and in him alone. He finds full confidence and assurance in God saying that I will not be greatly shaken. That's hope. Charles Spurgeon said this of these verses. They trust not God at all who trust him not alone. He that stands with one foot on a rock and another foot upon quicksand will sink and perish as certainly as he that standeth with both feet upon a quicksand. In verses 3 and 4, David emphasizes the need to trust in God by describing the assault upon him. It says in verse 3, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse Selah. David writes here with a great sense of urgency because his assailants are conspiring to thrust him down from his high position. His enemies are relentlessly attacking him, whether it be to remove him from his throne or simply to ruin his life and his reputation. How long will you attack me, David asks. This is a prolonged and persistent attack upon him. David has been dealing with this stressful situation for some time. He is amazed at the unyielding assault of his enemies. His attackers see a, a level of vulnerability in David. They sense some weakness and some opportunity for gain. So they strike in a manner that one might 
as if he were to want to destroy an already leaning wall or unstable fence. They are moving in to finish David. David, too, sees himself as weak and unstable and vulnerable. He feels as if he's ready to be pushed over, to fall if he's pushed hard enough. He is being worn down. He has been greatly weakened. He's feeble and he's frail. His evil enemies employ a strategy that includes lies and falsehoods and curses. They offer to him false praise and flattery with the intent to deceive. They say positive things about him, pretending to honor him while planning evil for him. David realizes that he does not have the strength within himself to defend himself, so he leans on God. Realizing that he is tottering, David reminds himself that he is secure upon the rock. While he may be wavering, he, he recenters himself, realizing that he must trust in God. He realizes that this situation does not need to end in defeat because he can trust in God. In his weary condition, David's strength must be regained. David's hope must be restored. So he reattaches himself to the rock, writing in verses 5 and 6, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is in him, David says, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. David repeats nearly word for word what he had previously stated in verses 1 and 2. Here he's giving wise counsel to his own soul. He reminds himself that my hope is in him and nothing else. While well, verses 5 and 6 mirror verses 1 and 2, there's one noticeable difference. In verse 2, David states that he will not be greatly shaken. But here in verse 6, he makes a more definitive declaration. I shall not be shaken at all. Because God... And God alone is my confidence. God and God alone is my assurance. Because he is my rock, my fortress, my salvation. In him I have an unshakable faith. When I took my eyes off God, David says, when I stopped looking up, when I looked to my enemies and the threats all around me, my hope waned. My soul was troubled. But when I recentered my attention back on God, my hope was restored. As verse 5 says, for my hope is from him. David says, I have an expectant faith in God. He is the antidote to my despair. And God is the antidote to our despair as well. God is the object of David's faith. He is the one in whom he trusts. That's why he says, my hope is from him and I shall not be shaken. 
There's a resolve. In verse 7, David reasserts in whom he finds his confidence. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my, my refuge is God. You notice here the possessive language regarding his God that David employs in this verse. David says that God is my salvation. He is my glory. He is my mighty rock. He is my refuge. These words reflect the close relationship that David has with the Lord. His Lord. And that's why he can rest. He can rest in God alone for his protection. He rests in him for his stability. And he rests in him for his salvation. God is the God. He is the rock who will keep him from being shaken. He is the rock who will keep him from having doubts. He is the rock who keeps him from losing hope. Because David knows the Lord is trustworthy, he's able to save, he's able to deliver, he calls on others to imitate his faith. He encourages us to trust in the Lord, who always acts in the best interests of his people. We read in verse 8, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. God knows that just as God has been faithful, or David knows that just as God has been faithful to him by protecting him and delivering him, that God will be faithful to all of His people. Not only are we to trust in Him, David says, but we are to trust in Him at all times. In good times, in bad times, even in times of despair, trust in Him. For some of us, we find it easy to trust in God during good times, don't we? But when affliction comes, we lose hope. And somehow, the thought comes across our mind that God has deserted us. David implores, trust in him at all times. Others turn to God in times of affliction only. But during the good times, they turn their back on God and forget that he's even there. Trust in him at all times. Some of us do not see the need to lean on him when all is well, when things are good in this life. We place God on the back burner, so to speak. But we expect him to be there when we are in desperate need. It is only then, during times of trouble, that we call out to him in desperation. The Israelites did this time and again in the book of Judges. They were oppressed and they called out to God for salvation. And God was there. God was faithful. He answered their prayers. Trust in Him at all times because He is trustworthy. 
as determined as David is that we put our our hope in God alone, he knows that we too often will put our trust in other things or other people. So in verses 9 and 10, David details for us the futility of hoping in anything or anyone other than God. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Where God is perfectly stable, powerful, and trustworthy, human beings and their riches and their schemes are powerless, if not worthless. Whether rich or poor, the influence of human lives is literally nothing compared to the supremacy of the Lord and should not be overly trusted. David says of those of low estate that they have no real substance of character and cannot be counted on. They are but a breath. Here one moment and gone the next. He also says of those of high estate that they are nothing but a delusion. Your version may say an illusion. Those of high estate, they are not what they appear to be. They will often let you down. David further warns against misplaced hope in verse 10. Don't rely on riches. Riches cannot save. At best, they can only offer a false security. Though your riches increase, David says, set not your heart on them. Solomon told us of this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He tried everything that the world had to offer. He tried everything to find satisfaction and joy and hope. And found everything to be fruitless. Of no true value. The end of the book in chapter 12 verse 8. Solomon says of the world's offerings. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Place not your hope in the things of this world. Vanity here being interpreted, interpreted as being nothing but a vapor. Nothing but a mere breath. There's no substance to it. David says, don't put your hope in the vanities of this life because they are nothing compared to the greatness of our God. Set your hope only on God. David concludes the psalm with two compelling reasons to trust in God alone. We read in verses 11 and 12. Once God has spoken. Twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. The two things that David understood were that power belongs to God. And to him belongs steadfast love. God alone 
holds absolute power. And his absolute power is tied to his steadfast love. He is strong. He is powerful. He is able to accomplish anything. To rescue us from any situation that we find ourselves in. Including the things that seem impossibly hopeless to us. He is loving. He is merciful. He is gracious. And because he loves us, he is working everything for our good. The God of power is also the God of love. That is what makes him alone. Him only. The one in whom to place our hope. Earlier, we noted several concerns that exist in our world. We also spoke of burdens that each of us may be carrying. Not all of them are common concerns to each of us. But there is one need that all of us share. And that is the need for salvation. Where do we find our hope for salvation? It is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It is found in God the Son. He is the only one who possesses the perfect pairing of power and love. He alone has the power to save and the love to accomplish it. There is hope. Because whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, none of them were a surprise to God. He knew that we would be a broken people living in a broken world. And Jesus came to make them right. To make them whole again. In John chapter 16, Jesus says this. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You will have trouble. It's a guarantee, Jesus says. But take heart, have hope. I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has defeated sin and wickedness and evil. He is the victor. In all of this, God knew that we would be hopeless apart from him. So he gave us the gift of his son, Jesus, to fix the broken, to eliminate the despair, to offer hope. Jesus Christ came as Emmanuel, God with us. And as John says in his gospel, and the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us to give us hope. And when he came, God gave him the name Jesus. Why did he name him that? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. 
He is the only hope for our salvation. Jesus Christ, the hope giver, accomplished our salvation through his death, burial, and resurrection from which we enjoy our living hope. As Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope. And this same Jesus will come again one day, just as he said he would. We read in the book of Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And what are we to do in the meantime? We wait we're waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, the long-expected king has come. He's come in the form of a babe. And yes, the king is coming again. Until then, we keep looking up. We find our hope in God. Until Jesus does return, my hope for you is the same as Paul's. Words written in Romans chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you are a God of hope. You saw that we were hopeless people. Without a way of having our sins forgiven, without a way of having peace with you, Yet in your great wisdom, in your great power, in your great love, you gave us your son, Jesus Christ. Because he would save his people from their sins. It is in him that we find our hope. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.